because I want you to know that I'm all in with Ole Miss. And I want you to know that every day is game day. <laughs> Two quick announcements. Um, let me remind you, just want to highlight prayer tonight as far as a way you can get involved in RUF and then the Mercy Ministry clipboard. Um, that's a big part of who we are and who we want to be on this campus. Um, it's not about coming on Wednesdays and getting everything up here. We're about working this stuff that we're talking about on Wednesday and the gospel kind of getting worked out in our lives. And one of the ways, real practical ways, is you can sign up to serve one of the Mercy Ministries. You can look on that announcement sheet. Several ways to get involved. Uh, and so I hope you'll consider that. We want to be a ministry um, that puts hands and feet uh, to the good news of the gospel because... Not to make us feel better about ourselves, but because Jesus has so richly uh, served us. And that pushes us out into the world around us. So I hope you'll sign up for one of those. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 2 if you're not already there. And if you don't have your Bible, look on the announcement sheet. You'll see the scripture printed for you with an outline. As you're turning to that passage... I want to take you back to a movie that most all of you have probably seen, 2004, and the movie was called The Village. How many people have seen The Village? Most all of you. If you haven't, the movie is basically a, about a group of town's leaders who are in this sort of process group together, and they are so confronted with the world around them, with the pain and the junk and the filth of the world that they decide to move out into the woods and to create this own, their own kind of community of comfort, their own utopia, if you will. And as I thought about that movie, I thought about how often that describes the church. You see, I'm afraid that for the most part, Christians have developed that same retreatist, that same separatist, that same holy huddle mentality when it comes to dealing with the world around them. Often we think Christianity is about sealing ourselves off with the filthy from the filthy people with our clean standards. Friends, that's not Christianity. That's insulation. Sealing ourselves off in order to remain safe and pure is a cheap substitute that cultural Christianity has gladly sold us. You see, Christians know what happens, and those outside these walls tonight, they know what happens, and they hate it. And they use it as the reason for staying out. And so the question is, if Christianity is not about insulation then what is it about? You know, in RUF, the answer is found in God's Word, in the Scriptures. The answer to that question is found in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, because Mark is going to show us what authentic Christianity, what real Christianity looks like. Let me pray before we start tonight. Father, thank you for your Word, that it speaks to all of life, 
I pray tonight that you would uh, be at work in our heart, that you would bring about conviction and that you would actually push us out into the world around us as a result of seeing what Jesus uh, does in this passage and how he actually lives his life. Uh, Show us uh, what Christianity, true, authentic Christianity really looks like. Holy Spirit, be at work. Teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this passage begins the first of five stories of conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. They were known as the Pharisees. And that word Pharisee literally means separatist. They were known, this group called the Pharisees, were known for cutting themselves off from the uglier elements of society and life. But before we dig into the passage about this conflict with the Pharisees, Some of you have been around me enough already, and you know I talk a lot about the context of a passage, because the context actually helps us understand kind of the passage that we're actually looking at. And the context does the same here. Let's look at the context real quick, because it really helps us. Look back in chapter 1. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then, if you keep looking, Jesus heals a leper which was unclean according to Jewish law. Then if you keep looking further, Jesus heals in the beginning of chapter 2 a Gentile paralytic who was also unclean according to Jewish law. And so right from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you get the idea that this Jesus is doing things differently. And then out of nowhere... Doesn't it seem strange you're reading, we're hearing about all these people getting healed and paralytics and lepers, and then boom, in chapter 2 we have the calling of Levi. And I don't know about you, but as I'm reading, I'm thinking, what? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, this seems a little odd and a little out of place, but it's not. Why isn't it out of place? Well, because you see, Levi, like the leper, like Peter's mother-in-law, like the Gentile paralytic needed to be healed by Jesus. And the problem that he most needed to have cured was his sin. And as we're going to see from our passage tonight, that's the problem that his friends needed help with as well. In Mark chapter 2, Mark is trying to get us to see what authentic Christianity is all about. And he's trying to show us that the gospel and that Jesus is not about performance. But Jesus comes with a message of grace. And so he shows us what true Christianity really looks like. And he says it's two things. If you have an outline, you'll see that it's about pursuing the scandalous. And then secondly, rejecting self-righteousness. Let's look at the first one, pursuing the scandalous. The story begins in verse 13, and Jesus is walking along the seashore. And he comes upon this tax booth, but notice Jesus doesn't just see the tax booth, Jesus sees the man behind the tax booth. The passage tells us that the man's name was Levi. 
And we need to know something about this Levi. What, what was his profession? Well, he was a tax collector. And that meant that he went further into the first century pit than any of the other people I've already mentioned, than the leper and then the Gentile paralytic. Why? Well, because tax collectors were absolutely despised in their society. Levi was a moral untouchable. Why? Well, because tax collectors sold out their own people to serve the Roman government and collect huge taxes. They would collect more taxes than were necessary and they would pad their pockets with the extra. And so they were getting rich off of their own people. And not only that, these tax collectors and the people in the area knew that the taxes that were being raised were not going to the imperial budget. They were instead going straight to King Herod's treasury so that he could live a better lifestyle. Tax collectors were despised because they had betrayed their own people for their own private interest. They were actually classed together with robbers and murderers and considered in Jewish law to be, get this, beast unclean. Get the picture? You with me? Bottom of the barrel. These tax collectors. And so here's the picture. Here sits dirty, hated Levi, beast unclean, in the actual exercise of his hated calling, and the Lord Jesus passes by. And he looks at Levi. And he utters the two words, the two most powerful words that he's ever heard in his entire life. Follow me. And upon hearing those words, Jesus communicates something very powerfully to us and he communicates something very powerful to Levi. Because he lets, in that moment, he lets Levi know that his call does not depend on the merit of his own righteousness, but on the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus alone. How does he respond? Well, look, Levi gets up. I don't know whether it was 5 o'clock quitting time or if it was the middle of the day and he just leaves the tax booth with his assistant or he just leaves it empty. But what I want you to see is when he encounters the Christ, we talked about that a few weeks ago, the Son of God, Levi couldn't help but rise and follow. And I want you to notice in this passage, he's not following a religious standard, is he? He is following a person who is compassionately calling and who is compassionately compelling. You see, Jesus, friends, calls. He pursues the scandalous. You see it all throughout the Gospels. And he calls us tonight to do the same. And my question is, how do we do that? The only way, friends, that we'll ever pursue the scandalous around us is when we identify ourselves with Levi. And here's how you'll know that you've identified yourselves with Levi. You know that you've identified yourself with Levi when you start running towards the people that everyone else around you is running away from. You see, think about that one person in your life, on your hall, 
in your sorority house, fraternity house, in your class, in your sphere of influence. Think about that one person that everyone else ignores. Hear Jesus and run to them. You see, Jesus calls us to run towards the lonely and the broken and the poor and the awkward and those that are ignored, not away from them. You want to know how else you know that you've identified yourself with Levi? Well, you become increasingly frustrated with those around you who look down their noses at the outcast around you. You become increasingly frustrated with those around you that put limits on Jesus' grace and mercy. Matt Chandler, some of you might be familiar with the name, but he is a pastor in Texas. And he tells a story about a time he was in college and a 26-year-old single mom happened to randomly sit next to him. She was coming back to college in order to get her degree. And she didn't know much about Jesus. She didn't know much about Christianity. And she hadn't been to church in a long time. And so Matt strikes up a friendship with this woman. And his friends in the class, they start to become friends with her and reach out to her and get to know her. And so they invite her to a concert. It was taking place at a church. One of Matt Chandler's friends was playing. And so they invited her to come along. And she decides to come. Things are going well, and the concert's great. They're enjoying the music. He said, but when the concert was over, the minister stands up in front of the crowd, and he says these words. Tonight, I want to talk to you about sex. And Matt Chandler immediately thought this could be a problem. And he says that, the minister then took out a rose and he held up this rose and he smelled the rose and talked about how beautiful and how good it smelled and he talked about how pretty and beautiful the rose was. And then he threw the rose out into the crowd. There was about 400 people there. And he said, pass the rose around. Take it in. Enjoy it. Smell it. Pass it around. Enjoy the rose and as the rose is being passed around, he said the minister proceeded to unpack one of the worst mishandlings of sexuality that he had ever heard in his entire life. It was sheer fear base. And Matt says as things started to come to a close, all he could think about was Kim sitting behind, beside him and how she must be feeling in this moment. And he says, so as things start to wrap up, the minister starts to say, where's the rose? Where's the rose? Where's my rose? He said, a hand goes up in the very back of the room, and this man brings up the rose. And you can imagine how jacked up this thing is. I mean, the petals are all falling off. The stem has been broken in like five places. And his big conclusion was to hold up this rose and say, now who would want this? 
And Matt Chandler in that moment said, it was everything in him to keep from screaming, Jesus wants the rose. And friends, I think the gospel takes us one more step. The gospel actually is better than that because here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that Jesus doesn't just want the rose, that Jesus actually goes looking for the rose, that Jesus actually pursues the rose and moves towards the rose. Why? Because Jesus loves jacked up, broken, messed up people. You see, Jesus goes looking. He doesn't just want. He pursues ruined sinners like me and you. Some of you don't believe that tonight. You think for sure God is going to see you in your ruin and that He is going to draw back. You think for sure that God is going to see the mess that you've made of your life, some of you since in a month, since being here. And you think for sure that God is going to hide His face and turn and run the other way. Friends, that is not the God of the Bible. Because, there went all my notes. Because the God, because the God of the Bible pursues ruined sinners like you, in me. That's the first point. The second point is Jesus rejects self-righteousness. This should be good. <laughs> you know what? I've been doing this for six years. First time ever that's happened to me, seriously. That's a miracle, isn't it? Alright. There we go. Secondly, pursues or rejects self-righteousness. Look at verses 15 through 17. And so, Levi's following his buddies. And so it's time for a farewell feast. I mean, how can Levi possibly leave and follow Jesus without first introducing his buddies to the man that has spoken the two most powerful words in his life? And so they have a party. And at this party are probably all the tax collectors in this region. And also, if you look at your passage, it says another group's there. This group called sinners. Sinners was a technical term that referred to those that were truly wicked. Those that were beyond redemption. Those, they were the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. And sitting right in the middle of these folks is Jesus and His disciples. And so to those Pharisees, those that are consumed with doing it right, this is driving them absolutely crazy. Because Jesus is hanging out with these rejects. And He's defiling the law that they hold so sacred in their eyes. And not only that, they think that Jesus is wasting His time. And He's also bringing down His pupils, His disciples, with them. What possible good could come from hanging out with these folks? Had to have been one of the many questions the Pharisees had as they approached this wild scene. 
They were also probably filled with contempt and with fear. Contempt as they looked down from their high pedestals and fear as they somehow thought that they might become infected with sin. But not only were they filled with contempt and fear, probably, probably very confused, aren't they? Because here this Jesus is, this great teacher, the one that they had heard so much about, this wonder worker. And he is smashing all their traditions and the law that they hold so sacred in their eyes. I mean, they're thinking a paralytic, a leper, and now tax collectors and sinners... And so you can imagine they are overflowing with disgust as they walk up on this party. And we don't know if the Pharisees or the disciples were closer in this moment or if they knew they better not mess with Jesus. But they finally can't take it anymore and they are boiling And so they lash out. You see it there in the passage. Why is he eating with these folks? And in that moment, Jesus steps in to define authentic Christianity for us. And he defines it when he says, doctors serve the sick. They don't avoid them. Jesus says, guys, I'm not being two-faced when I talk morally and then hang out with sinners any more than the physician that talks about health all day and then spends his days in an infected hospital. But you see, the Pharisees don't get it, do they? Why don't they get it? Because you see, the Pharisees think they're whole. The Pharisees think they're healthy. They have no need for a physician. They're not coming to Jesus as sinners. They're coming to Jesus with the goal to learn more doctrine, more theology so that they can go out and crush people and condemn people and judge people. You see, in all actuality, everyone at that party but Jesus was sick, weren't they? But you know the folks that were in the biggest trouble? Yeah, that's right. The Pharisees, the smug know-it-alls who thought they were healthy. And then Jesus, as you see the passage, he finishes up with this self-righteous crew by saying to the Pharisees, guys, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for the good people. I came for them. I came for the sinners and the tax collectors. And so the question then becomes, do you have to become bad so that Jesus can invite you? The answer is absolutely not. We don't have to become bad, friends. The Bible says that we already are. And so what this passage is teaching us is that Jesus is saying, recognize your badness, if you will. See your own brokenness and the need that that creates and run to me and fall at my feet as your only hope. You see, the Pharisees never could do it. Maybe the wild folks at the party could, but I don't know. But you know, I know some folks at another party that got it. Tony Campolo, he's a pastor and an author. He tells a story about a time that he was in Hawaii. He was in a speaking engagement at a conference. 
And he finds himself with jet lag, awake at three in the morning, hungry for breakfast. He decides to get up, and he goes driving through Honolulu, trying to find a place to eat. He finally finds an old run-down diner. He said it was a hole in the wall, one of these kinds of places that you didn't want to touch the menu. And so he walks in, he's the only one in the diner, and he introduces himself to the cook, whose name is Harry. He starts to talk with Harry, and he says at about 3.30 in the morning, the door flies open, and in walk eight or nine provocative prostitutes. He says that they, of course, were loud and crude. And he says at one point in their conversation, he begins to feel really uncomfortable. And so he decides to kind of slide out and make his way to the exit. And so puts his money on the table, and he begins to head for the exit. And he says as he was almost there, he heard one of the prostitutes say, Hey, girls. Tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And one of the other girls, real in a nasty tone, said, So what? What do you want us to do? Throw you a birthday party? Another girl chimed in, Yeah, throw you a birthday party, bake you a cake, sing happy birthday, whatever. The girl obviously was dejected. And after all, she should be because she'd never had a birthday party in her entire life. Tony Campolo says his wheels begin to turn, and he got an idea. He makes his way back into the diner, and he sits down at the bar and waits for the girls to leave. The girls leave, and he calls Harry out from around the back, and he says, Harry, do those girls come in here every night? Harry said, yeah, they actually do. About 3.30 every night, they're in, in here. He goes, what about the one closest to me, the one that said that it was her birthday tomorrow? He said, yeah, that's Brandy. She comes in here every night. He goes, I have an idea. Let's throw Brandy a birthday party. And so Harry's eyes got real wide, and he was excited about this idea because he wanted to make the cake. So Harry was going to make the cake. Tony Campolo, this is a true story. Tony Campolo said, I'll bring the balloons, I'll bring the confetti, I'll bring the streamers, I'll bring the signs. We'll do this right. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 2.30 and I'll set up. 2.30 in the morning, Campolo comes back, sets up. They have this birthday party. It's all being set up. And Campolo says that by 3.15, the place was wall-to-wall prostitutes. Evidently, the word had gotten out in Honolulu about this party. (laughs) And he says, at 3.30 in the morning, boom, sure enough, the door flies open and in walks Brandy and her friends and the whole place erupts in the singing of happy birthday. And Campolo says, at that moment, he has never in his life seen someone so visibly shaken. He said, her eyes begin to moisten with tears, and her knees begin to buckle. And the crowd is singing happy birthday, and as the crowd kind of winds down, here comes Harry around the corner with the cake. And he says when she sees the cake, she just loses it and begins to weep openly right there in the diner in front of everyone. And Harry, being the insensitive guy 
that he is is going, come on, blow out the candles, blow out the candles. If you don't, I will. And so, of course, she doesn't, and he does. He blows them out. And so then he starts in on her, come on, cut the cake. Everybody wants some cake. And she looks up at Harry, and she says these words. Is it okay if I keep the cake for a while? She says, I've never had a birthday cake in my entire life, and I'd like to keep it. And Harry gives her, didn't know what else to do, of course, gave her the thumbs up, and she walks out of this diner carrying this cake and carries it all the way home. But when she walks out, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody's like, now what do we do? And so Tony Campolo, being a preacher, he said, I did the first thing that comes to mind. I said, let's pray. (laughs) And he says, strange, a prayer meeting at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu Honolulu with every prostitute in Honolulu. (laughs) And he prays, and when he finishes up his prayer, he said, Harry bumps him in the arm and says, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. And Harry... Uh, says, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. And Campolo looks at him and says, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And Harry says, what kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo says the words came just right. And he looks at Harry and he says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry responds... By saying, there's not a church like that. There's no church that loves people like that. Harry said, if there was a church like that, I'd join it. Wouldn't we all? Friends, that is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. Jesus loved to party with the prostitutes and the left out folks. And my question tonight is, are you throwing birthday parties, if you will, for the filthy people and bringing them to tears with your kindness? Or are you insulating yourself so much with the right people that you've actually isolated yourself from those that aren't doing it right? If you're here tonight and you're on the outside, maybe you're not a Christian, Do you ever feel rejected by those on the inside? Do you ever feel like there's some sort of game going on? If you're here tonight and you have ever felt judged by this insidery Christian subculture, if you've ever felt judged and you feel like you don't even really know how to describe it, I've got something that I want to say and and I want you to hear this. I am so sorry that self-righteous people like me have judged you and not moved towards you with compassion and with grace. Because friends, that's what Jesus would do. You see, authentic Christianity is about moving towards the broken and the needy and the outcast with compassion and with mercy. How do we do that? It all goes back to the gospel. 
We do that when we realize that we're the ones that don't meet the standard. We do that when we realize that we are the ones that would be isolated if it weren't for Jesus' compassion and mercy and grace on us. See, the gospel says we're all sick. The gospel says every single one of us needs a physician. Every single one of us desperately needs Jesus. And so why don't we all go back to the tax booth tonight? Why don't we all go back to the tax booth and remember? Remember who we were. Remember that we were dead in our sin and Jesus made us alive and called us. And if we do that, here's what will happen. If we go back to the tax booth, instead of retreating like they did in the village, maybe that compassion will make its way down deep into our soul and change us and push us out into the world without contempt and without fear. Let's pray.